This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is a science podcast for January 5th, 2024. I'm Sarah Crespi. Welcome to a new year at the Science Podcast. We start out with a look back at 2023 and the top online news stories with editor David Grimm. There'll be cats, but also electric cement and mind reading. Next, can a machine tell a tuberculosis cough from other kinds of coughs? Researcher Manuja Sharma joins me to talk about her work collecting a cough data set to prove this kind of discrimination is possible with just a smartphone. Every year, our online news team publishes hundreds of stories from all sectors of science. We talk about cats, but we also hear about lots of physical science, bioscience, and kind of news of the weird on occasion. And at the end of the year, Dave, our online news editor, rounds it all up with some staff favorites and fan favorites, reader favorites. So Dave, what have you brought us today? What Can I guess that there's a cat story in the mix? Yeah, you know, Sarah, every year I feel like we've got a cat or a dog story maybe mandated at this point by me. Yes, and me. <laughs> but actually, it's usually because, you know, a lot of these stories are some of our most popular of the year, and that always ends up either being a cat or a dog story. Yeah, we have to watch out for the internet. Right. Influencing everybody to become cat content sites. That's right. Okay, so I'm going to go with cats first then. Okay. <laughs> this one is about the number of facial expressions that cats make. Did you write this story? I did not write this story. Actually, there was a, it was a remarkable year because we had a lot of cat and dog stories that I did not write. <laughs> What's cool about this story, which is true of a lot of our top 10 list, it not only was it a popular story, but it was also an exclusive story. So we were the ones to break the story and, and the only ones who had the story. And so this is a story about facial expressions in cats and how many they make and how they actually make a remarkable number. Researchers have found that cats make 276 facial expressions. That does seem like a lot. <laughs> I don't know how many people make. I don't know how many dogs make. I don't really have any point of reference, but my cats make faces at me all the time. Right. Was this surprising? I mean, I guess they're social with us, but is that enough to give them such a diverse repertoire of facial expressions. Well, the thing I really like about the study is, you know, people kind of think of cats as sort of these antisocial creatures, which is clearly not the case. I mean, they live in our homes, they sleep in our beds, and also they have to often interact with other cats. They don't have language like we do. So how are they communicating affection, anger, 
other types of communication if they don't have a language. And it turns out, you know, the things that cat lovers notice with their cats, the squinty eyes, the whiskers that sometimes go in different directions, the ears that go in many different directions. The dangerous direction back. <laughs> the dangerous direction, right. And all of these can combine in various different combinations to produce all of these different expressions. What does the researchers do to figure out this quantity of cat expressions? Well, I was kind of jealous. They spent a lot of time in a cat cafe in Los Angeles recording, video recording all of these cats uh, interacting with each other. They actually got 194 minutes of cat facial expressions. And that's how they got this very large number. Now, Sarah, you had mentioned earlier, how do we know how this compares? And we know that chimpanzees, obviously very closely related to us, produce 357 oh. facial expressions. So it's, it's actually not too far from chimpanzees. But the numbers surprisingly haven't been tallied for humans or for dogs. So we don't know how that compares to some of these other animals. We should film some people. That's right. <laughs> Seems like that would be pretty straightforward to do. <laughs> it does. That's our mandatory cat story. Now we're going to talk about cement batteries. I don't usually think of cement as something that can hold charge. Right. Or can pass charge like it's like a big insulator. So... How can you turn cement into a battery? Cement is not a very good conductor. But what the study did was it started with not what can cement do, but imagine if it could do these things, right? So imagine if the foundation of your home, which is probably made of cement, could store power. The foundation could power that the home. Or roads made of cement. What if those could transfer that power to cars on the roadway and therefore be a source of power for, let's say, electric vehicles or cement storing the power that's uh, generated by green technologies like uh, wind and solar? So that's the possibilities. That's the possibilities. Of the future. So what do we do to get there? We start with something really cool, which I'd never heard of. It's a powdered form of carbon known as carbon black. And what's cool is we're talking about a very futuristic technology that's reliant on a technology that goes back a long time. Since antiquity, carbon black has been used to make black pigment. But what you can do, what the researchers did was they found was that when they mix this with cement, the particles of carbon black repel water. And so they clump together and they actually form these long interconnected tendrils within the hardening cement that can act like a network of wires. Maybe you see where we're going here. Now, if you've got wires, you've got something that can all of a sudden conduct electricity. Yeah, so you can move and sort charge. And so then you can store power in the cement. Exactly. How big is this? I'm assuming it's not the size of my garage floor. No, it's not. And there was no powering of homes or cars done in the study. It was actually just powering of a few LED lights. And the idea is now that they were able to show that it actually works on a small scale, can they power it up to a larger scale to do some of these sort of gee whiz things we've been talking about? Very interesting. All right, Dave, we're going to move on to the next story, which is about how mad scientists can help the public better understand the practice of science rather than the results of science. Who is your favorite mad scientist? I already have one picked out. <laughs> My favorite mad scientist is from my favorite movie, Back to the Future. So it's got to be Doc, Doc Brown. Brown. Doc Brown. Okay. 
Uh, Doc Brown, unfortunately, not in this story. But who is your favorite mad scientist, Sarah? Okay, so I actually have a tie between Young Frankenstein. Okay, that's a good point. And The Man with Two Brains. Have you seen that movie? Uh, Steve Martin. Yes. Either way, there's a brain transplant involved with my mad scientist, my top mad scientist. Not to date myself, but I saw that movie in the theaters. Nice. <laughs> I'm going to say these brain transplants, they don't really seem ethical. They don't. And nor does probably some of the stuff that Doc Brown was doing. Some of the other mad scientists discussed in the story, Professor Frink from The Simpsons. Oh, yeah. And Cave Johnson from the video game Portal. So we got mad scientists in all types of medium, TVs, video games, movies, everything. And some people would say that gives people a bad impression of what science is like. It does. And actually, the, the point of this story, yeah, or the point of We're gonna the, get there. the researchers that we will get to eventually uh, that we interviewed for the story is to actually do the opposite, to show not that mad scientists are actually good, but to actually show that discussing this stuff can actually be good for science. It can help the public understand things like ethical oversight and review boards, all the things that we have in place to ensure that science is conducted not only sort of feasibly, but also uh, ethically, humanely. Yeah. So this is this had to do with a panel that was conducted at a, a research conference. I think they had an audience of 450 participants that were sort of asked all these questions, you know, if mad scientists did X, so developed a freeze ray that could potentially maybe save people's lives. You know, we might be freezing a child to prevent him or her from crossing the street. <laughs> but what if the freeze ray, like, peeled their skin off, you know, like be too <laughs> gruesome. But, you know, like, how do you sort of how do you sort of deal with ethical implications of testing and developing a technology like that? Yeah. Sarah, this is one of my favorite stories of the year, because uh, we don't often get to do pop culture in our stories. We also often don't get to run a still from The Simpsons in our stories. And this one has one of those as well. Yes. And I know that's a severe it's a hardship for you. <laughs> yeah. No, I like this story because it makes the IRB fun. Yes, exactly. I, I think our ethical review boards need a shiny new reputation. That's right. We pride ourselves on writing these stories that we're trying to translate a scientific discovery to the general public so they understand what does it mean and why, why is it important. And this is sort of a part of science we don't often talk about the review boards. But we also want to give the, the public a sense for how these work. And this is a fun way to do it. Definitely. All right. Uh, next, we have a story with some sound. And the question these researchers, I think, were asking was, can you take recordings from the brain and figure out what is happening in there? Like what people are listening to or seeing. And in this case, the researchers tried to reconstruct a song from brain recordings. I'm going to play the song, the reconstructed song now. Okay, Dave, <laughs> would you have been able to identify what, what song this is? Probably not. And for a couple of reasons. One, as you can tell from the recording, or maybe not tell from the recording, it's a little, <laughs> it doesn't sound like, uh, like any song you've probably heard. But the other reason is that the song is actually another brick in the wall, part one, which is... <laughs> The lesser known of the oh, Another boy. Brick in the Wall songs from Pink Floyd, the more much more famous version being part two. So uh, listeners out there should feel bad if they, Don't feel bad, if they yeah. couldn't get it. But it is still very remarkable because this is basically the case of researchers taking brain readings from a number of participants who had heard 
a variety of songs, but another brick on the wall, part one being one of them and training an AI to sort of be able to see, could it piece these recordings together? Could it interpret them? Could it sort of spit out what these participants had actually heard? And while it's not a perfect rendering of the song, it's also pretty remarkable. There's some elements there. It's, there are there are some elements there. Yeah, especially if you know the song. We, of course, we can't <laughs> play we can't play the song because of copyright. So go Google it. Oh no! <laughs> but, too bad. Too bad. But yeah, I I do hear elements if you you know listen to them one after the other that are are similar. So how do you get recordings like this from somebody's brain? Yeah, right. Well, this is was not easy. I mean, this is from something that was done almost a decade ago. There was electrodes inserted into the brains of people with epilepsy. The, the purpose of the study was to record brain activity during a seizure, but there was also part of the study that was, you know, they were playing music. And so many years later, scientists took these readings for this new study to try to figure out, can we re reconstruct this song? But it's not just that. It's because that's maybe too fun for a scientific study, right? My reading is important, but maybe not the goal here. What was really cool about the study was not just the reconstruction of the song, but that the researchers are actually able to pinpoint a new area of the brain that seems to be involved in the perception of musical rhythm. And the other cool thing is the application. So you could say, well, why are we even doing this? But you can imagine we have obviously a lot of people in the world that can't speak as a result of strokes or injuries or degenerative diseases. And so if there was a way to sort of be able to read their minds, as it were, and be able to sort of kind of spit out what they're trying to do. Now, obviously, we're not there with this study, but studies like this are the first steps in doing being able to do something like that. Okay. All right, Dave, last story we're going to talk about, you have to check out the rest of the top 10 online after this one. And this one, I think I feel must have garnered a lot of interest from the headline alone, which I'm going to just read. Crocodiles are alarmingly attuned <laughs> to the cries of human infants. Okay. Keyword there being alarmingly, right? <laughs> exactly. All right. So this seems like it might have been a difficult study to do. How do researchers decide that crocs had a preference for stressed out babies? Well, Sarah, I want to let you know that no babies were harmed in the <laughs> making of this study. Instead, researchers went to a zoo in Morocco that houses more than 300 Nile crocodiles. And what they did was they played on loudspeakers a number of different cries, some from human babies, some from other primate babies. And the baby's cries sort of differed in what sparked the cry. Some of these cries were just like, they were kind of upset because they were getting a bath, you know, yeah. when they didn't want to get a bath. But some of them were much more frantic cries. You know, they're getting a shot and they don't really know what's going on. So there's a lot more panic in the cry. And the question was, would the crocs respond whether they responded all to these cries and would they respond especially well to a cry of an infant in distress? The big reveal is, yeah. Yes, it's true. <laughs> alarmingly attuned to the cries. Of alarmingly attuned, right. Okay, but I was also surprised that people weren't so good at this, like even with babies, not like bonobos or whatever, but like chimpanzees. No, people weren't good at it with babies, human infants. Right, that was the other thing. When the researchers played these sounds for people... They knew that they were all cries, but they couldn't really make that distinction between like, is the baby especially kind of panicked, you know, worried in this particular uh, sound, or is this kind of just kind of a more normal run in the mill cry? Should I play them? It's for me, it's hair raising. I, I can play them though. Yeah. Well, we got, this is all about the sound files, right? Well, let's, okay, let's do distressed baby. 
and then complaining but not really upset baby. I can tell the difference, but I don't know. You can tell the difference, right. And so you would make a great Nile crocodile, Sarah. <laughs> exactly. So, okay. So when we say that crocodiles responded to these cries, what was their response like? What did they do? Well, there were speakers, again, playing these cries, and the crocs tended to approach them, much more likely to approach the speakers when they were playing these cries, sometimes bite the speakers. <laughs> Alarmingly, Sarah, they would sometimes, <laughs> sometimes bite the speakers. So this was a pretty, uh, pretty substantial response that these crocs had. So the next leap in logic is that they were trying to eat the baby. I mean, could they have been trying to help the baby? Right. And, you know, let's, you know, let's give these crocs the benefit of the doubt. You know, one of the, the sources we spoke to in the story said, you know, we know that they're responding, but we don't really know what they're trying to do. Because actually, we know that these, this particular species of crocodiles, that they respond to the distress calls from their own young. And so possibly this is just a sort of a, a nurturing reaction. You know, they're concerned. You know, it doesn't quite explain the biting of the speakers. <laughs> well, oh, hey, don't some crocodiles put babies in their mouth and carry them around? I don't know, but uh, that's possible. Yeah, I guess I guess that, that may be true. So Okay, so I'm going to go for altruistic okay. crocodile in this. All right, Dave, thanks so much for bringing us some really fun stories this year. There are what, five more faves on the site. There's five more. So we got, you know, we've got a top, our top 10 list. But we've discussed five. There's a bunch of other ones that are very popular, very loved by either our staff or our readers or both. So be sure to go to the site and check the rest of those stories out. All right. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. Dave Grimm is the online news editor for science. Visit science.org slash podcast for a link to the list. Up next, listening for tuberculosis coughs with Manuja Sharma. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org Eppendorf to apply today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than science careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. What can you tell from a cough besides, oh, that person is unwell? This week in Science Advances, Manuja Sharma and colleagues describe a method of screening for tuberculosis infection using coughs and a smartphone. Hi, Manuja. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is super interesting. You know, tuberculosis is a big killer. More than 10 million people per year die from this disease, and it's on the rise lately. 
Manuja, what do we do now to screen for active TB? What kind of screens are there? The current gold standards for TB diagnosis include uh, sputum culture or gene expert molecular tests. And they are basically done on the sputum that's collected from patients after they cough. And that is sent for either a PCR analysis or a culture to see if there is any TB bacteria growth in it. These two are the most common ones, though they are not available at every level of clinics. Right. So not everybody's going to have the PCR machine. Yes. These are not really available at the peripheral health centers. And also, it's not very easy to collect the sputum, especially for kids. Oh, yeah. So that is another thing that adds complexity. So availability of tests and also doing those some of the tests are not that easy. There's a need here. And your study actually aimed to use coughing sounds as a screening tool. Mm -hmm. You know, how have people attempted to use coughing sounds before for disease diagnosis? Looking at cough, both the cough counts as well as the cough features goes way back. Cough count is more popular. You know, when you go into the clinic, doctors ask, you know, have you been coughing? How often are you coughing? There are studies showing that those subjective methods are not that accurate. People really don't remember, you know, how often they are coughing. And so we need counters to help with that. Beyond just the frequency of coughing, it's also the features of the cough that's been of interest lately. There have been studies done in, even in 1990s to understand, you know, different kind of pulmonary diseases and trying to understand if the cough sounds differ. And what they have seen is there is some differences because of how the cough is produced. And essentially, because of that difference in the source of sound, we get different kind of frequency mapping of coughs. And that's been recently studied. COVID-19 made it quite popular. And so there have been a lot of interest in the field of tuberculosis also because cough is one of the most primary symptoms that's used for symptom screening. So if we can add more objective analysis in there, can we add more analysis to the features and try to understand from the sound of the cough if it sounds different from any other pulmonary disease that would be a easy to use screening tools at peripheral health centers. So what, what makes it such a hard problem to solve, you know, using cough sounds as, as data for a screening tool? Well, the first is actually establishing the fact that there is signature in cough. That's not yet established. So we are still at that research question whether there is signal in cough, disease-specific signal in cough. The first hurdle is actually getting access to the data set of subjects coughing because they have TB and subjects naturally coughing because they have some other health issues and trying to understand if we see a difference there. How were you able to capture coughs from people with tuberculosis? So this data set was collected at Kenya Medical Research Institute in Nairobi, where patients were coming in with TB symptoms, and they were screened with TB symptoms using the standard screening protocol. And then they were asked whether they want to sit for a two-hour study in a room where they'll be just, you know, sitting and passively coughing and not asked to produce cough voluntary. So all these subjects sat in a room and their cough was recorded using three different devices. And we made sure that the room did not have a lot of ambient noise. And also there was less talking in the room so that we get clean coughs. And similarly, we had a lot of subjects who did not have TB and, or who were incorrectly screened for TB. And they were also enrolled in the study to get some coughs from non-TB subjects. How many coughs did you end up using in your model? 
We have a cough data set of around 33,000 coughs from 149 subjects. That's a lot of coughs. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a lot of cough. We ended up using for the balanced data set for training and testing, we used around 21,000 coughs. And we're also releasing that data set with this paper. Right. So I actually asked you for cough sounds and we can play them here. We have some that are from TB patients. Yes. And some that are from non-TB patients. <coughs> and we can't tell the difference. Doctors can't tell the difference. And actually, you, for your study, you transformed those pieces of audio into basically a visual, you know, like a graph. And that, that was important to get a computer or machine learning to tell the difference between them. Yes. Like you said, anyone with normal hearing abilities will not be able to differentiate between the two coughs. And so the idea was to look it into a different domain, try to understand and see how the frequency and energy is changing over time. And can we see any features that's specific to TB or other pulmonary health issue? And so we transformed that cough into scalograms, which is essentially a plot of how the frequency is changing over time. And we took images of those plots and sent it through a ResNet-18 classifier and looked at the results of the Bryony classifier, whether it's classifying as a TB or not TB. And how good was the classifier at making that distinction? So we used cross-validation with our data set. And with that, we got an accuracy of around 79%. This obviously needs further validation using independent test sets. And that's true for you know every machine learning model. We need further validation. So one thing I noticed is that you used different kinds of recorders to capture the coughs. And maybe I'm interested in this because I work in audio, but I thought <laughs> it was interesting that the smartphones that you use turned out to be the best way to record these coughs. Is that surprising to you? It was a little surprising because we used three kind of microphones. One was a you know microphone similar to what's being used for this podcast, recording a high-end microphone. Then there was a smartphone microphone. And then the third one was a uh, conference microphone that we see in conference rooms on the table. The worst. Yeah, the worst. My hunch was that the worst would be the conference microphone, then the smartphone, and then the best recording. But what we saw was the smartphone did the best. And one of the reasons could be that when the subjects are coughing, the smartphone had automatic gain control. So it was able to adjust the amplitude based on how high the subject is coughing which was not the case for the higher end microphone. And we got a lot of cough sounds that were saturated. So essentially clipping. So that was, I think, one of the reasons for not getting good coughs from there. Oh, that was some good audio chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So yeah, if you have a microphone that doesn't compress the sound when it gets too loud, you end up with, yeah, it's just a wall of sound that you can't see any features in. And so here you go. The smartphone is good for that. So another question about your data real quick before we move on to how you can turn this into an application. This is unsourced information, but I do feel like people from different places sneeze differently. Do they also cough differently place to place? So that could be true. So all of this data was collected in Kenya at a research facility there. So it was a study just done in that demographic and we saw the difference there. There could be differences in how people are coughing, for example, here versus there. And that's just because, you know, it's part of the sound. People sound different. And so the coughs can also look different. And that's where the 
machine learning comes in, you train the model, you need more data, and you also need various transformations that you can do to map models from one data set to the other. So yes, there could be differences there, and that's something to work on when you know the screening tools come out actually is used in the public. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to find out how much coughs vary place to place and, and how this can be adapted to that, if they do. It might be that these features are universal, regardless of, you know, your vocalization preferences. Do you know anything about the relationship between what you're seeing in your scalagram, what you're hearing in the cough, and what is going on with the person? Why does it sound different? One of the theory is that TB impacts the lung tissues. And because of those impact in those lung tissues, the cough sounds differently. And we, what we played also played around was different frequency ranges, trying to understand which frequency range was having the most impact on the model. And we saw that data in the range of 10 to 4 kilohertz was impacting the model the most. Okay, that's super interesting. And so perhaps there's something about the way the lung tissue has changed that's like affecting that frequency of the cough. Could be. Yeah. Now, if this smartphone is good enough to record your sound for your data set, is it also good enough to take sound from people and use it to diagnose or at least say this person might have TB based on their cough? Yes. And that's what the next steps for the projects would be. Even the model that we have built is a lightweight model that can go on the smartphone. The idea would be to capture the sound on the mic on the phone and run it on the on the phone and then see the analysis in the clinic. So there is a challenge that comes in with a screening tool based on passive coughs because when the patient comes in, we'll have to wait for the patient to cough and then do the analysis. There have been studies using forced coughs that you the patient comes into the clinic and you ask them to cough and then you take those coughs and analyze that. But what we saw in a study that the passive and natural coughs differ a lot and model trains on, trained on passive cough is not translatable to voluntary coughs. Yeah. So there, is, there are some challenges there, but we think generally patients having TB do cough a lot. And so maybe if not in the clinic, they could be given that app on the phone if they have a phone or they could be given a phone to take home for a day and it can record night coughs and then that can be used later on to analyze and screen for TB. Okay. Are there other diseases, other human body sounds that we could listen for, analyze, and and help with disease diagnosis? There has been studies done in general on overall voice analysis because, you know, how people sound hoarse when they are down with so, so we do think different sounds can be important, not just cough, just in general sound analysis of how the person is talking or even like the wheezing sound that, you know, at times is produced. So all of that can also help in analysis. But for this purpose of the study, we only looked at cough. And one of the reasons was cough is used in symptom screening for tuberculosis. And we wanted to see if there is any way to make that symptom screening more robust. Mm -hmm. So if people in the clinic or, you know, at home have this app and they come in and they say, oh, my app says I have TB, what does the clinician do differently? Do they still, you know, do those next tests, but this kind of helps rule in or rule out TB quicker and easier? So it's essentially a screening tool to help facilitate the present screening tool, which is just, you know, asking patients whether they have fever, cough, or night sweats. 
So just adding on to that with objective analysis of cough and not just patient level, it can also be used to understand hotspots of TB transmission because it is one of the most infectious diseases causing death right after COVID-19. So it's very critical to understand where the spread of TB is. So if a lot of people in a community have the app and we get the data, we are getting a lot of TB sound like costs in this area. So that could help yeah. bringing in interventions to prevent that transmission. So we think it's it can be used at two levels, individual and community level. That's wonderful. What's next for this research? What else do you want to learn about coughs or how to do screening with them? So the first step is validating this result. We have done a cross-validation study and we want to evaluate our models on an independent test set. And with that, we still have ongoing cough recordings happening in the area. So we want to switch now to smartphone and do all the cough collection on that and try to see if we can we can use the model to do some real-time prediction and how that behaves. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Manuja. Thank you, Sarah, for having me here. Manuja Sharma was a PhD student in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Washington when she worked on this paper. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Megan Tuck at Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>